Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we will be exploring the remote viewing of Saddam Hussein at a time when he was hiding, trying to avoid capture. My guest is Stephen Schwartz, one of the world's foremost experts on the practical application of remote viewing. He is the author of The Secret Vaults of Time, Psychic Archaeology and the Quest for Man's Beginnings. The Alexandria Project, Opening to the Infinite, Remote Viewing the Gold Standard Course, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation, as well as two novels, The Vision, a novel of time and consciousness, and Awakening, a novel of aliens and consciousness. This interview is being conducted via the Internet, so now I'll switch over to the Internet video. Welcome, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, on Skype today. I know uh, it's been almost a couple of years since we were together in the studio, but uh, now you have uh, reported recently on a very exciting remote viewing regarding the capture of Saddam Hussein. So we'll be uh, discussing the details of that. And interestingly, the whole project began at a workshop at the Edgar Casey Foundation uh, which has been very important in your own development. Yes, the Edgar Casey material, which I consider to be the largest body of uh, meticulously detailed remote viewing uh, data that's ever been assembled, had a tremendous effect on my worldview, but also because of Gladys Davis Turner and her meticulous archival activities on how to record uh, really fully and properly non-local perception research. I learned a great deal from that and from reading the Casey material because when I started, there, I didn't know anybody that did this. There was nobody else, um, at least certainly that I knew. When I started what I called distant viewing, um, a lot of it was modeled on the fact that I realized from the Casey readings that all the senses reported and that time didn't make a difference and distance didn't make a difference. His work was just as accurate if you were in the next room or if you were on the other side of the planet. So that's really how you got your start in parapsychology was uh, through exposure to the Edgar Casey materials. Yes, Absolutely. Uh huh. And so there you are again uh, at the uh, Edgar Casey Foundation, running a workshop. In fact, not just a workshop, but a whole conference on remote viewing, of which this workshop was part. Yes, I I decided that there was no archival record of all of the founders speaking at one event, and so if you wanted to get their worldview and what their view of their research was, you'd have to go lots of different places. So I organized a conference and I invited essentially all the founders of remote viewing to come and speak. 
and I made I made films of it, and and it comes out as the gold standard remote viewing course, and so it's got you know basically everybody. Uh, I think the only person who was unable to come was Ed May, but uh, Hal Putoff, Russ Targ, Jim Spottiswood, uh, even Edgar Evans Casey talking about his father, which only time his, his views on Casey's uh, uh, remote perception was really recorded. Uh, uh, Dale Graff, Henry Reed. I mean, just everyone I, everyone who had made a contribution that I thought was important, I put together into what came be, to be known as the gold standard course. You can get it by going to www.nemoscene.com, N-E-M-O-S-E-E-N.com. And at the end of the conference, I decided I would teach a workshop for people who were interested in learning how to do it instead of just listening to people talk about it. So I organized this conference. This is in 2003. And um, I taught the people the first day how to do remote viewing. And we did the standard protocol just, I'm going to show you a target in an hour. The target doesn't exist now. It will be selected out of a pool of targets after you've provided the data. It's standard laboratory kind of protocol. And at the, at the break, uh, the, a number of the people who had come to this workshop, there were 64 of them, a number were in the military intelligence community because this was in Virginia Beach, so it's relatively proximate to Langley and Washington, D.C. and and the Norfolk, the Hampton Roads area. A number of these people came up to me and said, well, we want to do something that's more than just guessing targets, something that really has a, a real-world application. What could we do? And I said, well, let me think about it. And when I went to lunch, lying on the table from the previous person was a newspaper and uh, the above-the-fold headline was the unsuccessful search for Saddam Hussein. And so I thought, well, that's it. These people would be interested in that because many of them were in the military intelligence world. So we'll go do that. So I went back and asked how many wanted to volunteer to do it as a real experiment. And uh, 47 of them said yes. So we did a remote viewing of the, 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 the task uh, that they were assigned. The task instruction was describe the present, the, describe the circumstances and conditions and location of Saddam Hussein at the time that he is captured by American or uh, allied forces. So forces. this would be an example, I suppose, of, of what some people call front loading, that you're actually informing the viewers of about the nature of the target. So they were not totally blind. Well, they're totally blind in that nobody except for Saddam Hussein and a few of his followers knew where he was. But yes, whenever I do applied research, there is always there's the task instruction. I'd like you to locate the. Uh, the Palace of Cleopatra. I'd like you to find the Brig Leander. I would like you to find the Talking Idol of Ixchel. So, uh, you know, please locate it on a map and then describe for mm -hmm. me what you'll find when I go there. And this is a, this is a very 
This is standard kind of Mobius consensus protocol for an application experiment. Well, some people would suggest, though, that because they know an inkling, at least, about the nature of the target, that the uh, logical brain is going to try and uh, have a say here and, and try and come up with a logical response rather than a psi-related or intuitive response. Uh, you, you'd have to train viewers that they take the task and that they don't attempt to analyze or rationally work out the answer. You, what you, you're not asking them for analysis. You're asking them for sense impressions. Mm -hmm. So the people that I did who, the people who participated in this study, um, were people that I had trained the previous day and they had done three or four uh, remote viewings using targets. And typically what you say is, I'm going to show you a target in an hour. At the time that I'm asking this question, the target doesn't exist. It'll be randomly selected from a pool of targets at the future. So it's, I, I try to construct all of my experiments so that they are at least double blind, but usually triple blind. Mm -hmm. And so the Saddam Hussein experiment, I guess, falls somewhere in the middle between double and triple because there were in the archaeology experiments, Nobody knows the answer. There's no living human who knows the answer. In this case, uh, I didn't know the answer. The viewers didn't know the answer. Nobody in the United States knew the answer. Nobody except Saddam Hussein himself and a few of his followers knew the answer. So it wasn't completely, strictly triple blind, but functionally mm -hmm. it was triple blind because there was no book or newspaper or television show you could listen to yeah. that would give you the answer. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just thinking of, uh, and I don't want to dwell on this point for too long because there's so much okay. more to talk about, but oftentimes in my understanding when uh, tasks were given in the military units, uh, the target was simply like a number or, or, or some nondescript. Uh, uh, icon or something they could focus on that wouldn't reveal anything at all about the nature that's of the target. Because, that's because, Jeff, they knew where it was. Yeah. Don't you see the difference? Sure, I do. I see the difference, but I'm just I trying mean, to... I'm asking you to locate yeah. the secret uh, KGB laboratory, and I know where it is, and I say to you, Jeff, I'm going to give you the lat-long of of this place and i want you to describe what's there uh that's a that's a way of uh, but you have to know where the target is mm -hmm. i didn't know anything right that's the point yeah we didn't know where he was what condition he was in what his mindset was what clothes he would be wearing what he would have with him who he would have with him would he be armed would he resist we didn't know any of those things mm -hmm. and so the whole point of the of the exercise of the experiment was to describe where is he not where is he at this moment but where is he when he will be found and you got a, a great deal of uh, detailed information about that yes. 
Yes, you can, you can get anything if you know how to ask it. Uh, in my mind, it would have been if you had said, you know, find target number XYZ123, and then they began describing the location of a person in his condition where they might have been describing a mountain or a house or something. It would have been maybe, to my naive way of thinking, perhaps even more impressive. But since you're uh, attempting... It wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, uh, and why wouldn't it have worked? Because you have to give the task assignments so that they're focused on something. Hmm. Now, if I were going to do, for instance, uh, if you give you another kind of experiment, um, we were, I, I was asked, I went up to, to brief the Delta Force at the Army War College and the district attorney uh, from Lancaster County and the colonel of the state police uh, came and asked me, they were looking for an Amish girl who had a young 14 year old girl that had disappeared. And they, they gave me a picture of her. They didn't even give me her name. They gave me a picture and, and I put it in a sealed envelope. And so I said to people, uh, in this sealed envelope is a human individual. Please describe the circumstances and conditions of this individual. And describe for me um, uh, where this individual is presently located. Now, I didn't know she was dead. They didn't know she was dead. So the first thing the reviewer said was, well, this person's is a girl and she's not alive. So, you know, you, you have to tailor the protocol for the task that you're trying to accomplish. Hmm. And so if I had a picture of Saddam Hussein as he presently was, and I had said to them, in this envelope is a picture of a human individual. Can you describe the present circumstances and conditions of this individual? Then they would have given me uh, Saddam Hussein, where he was in November, but not where he was found in uh, more than a month later in December. So my question was, how can I produce a set of hypotheses which is the function of the remote viewing part, is to produce a set of hypotheses that can be acted upon in the field work. So the question was, where would he be when he was discovered? And so they're telling me in the future, not where he is today, but where he's going to be a month from now. And and so you also were looking for a number of specifics, like uh, not just his location, but his condition and yes. uh, wh what might he might be you know, with, what people he might be with, what objects he might be with, what weapons or money yes, he might exactly. have with them. So you had a, a list of things you were looking for going in. Yes, because, again, this was a combat situation. And so I wanted to be able to say to anybody who was going to be involved with this search, the man that you're looking for when you find him is going to resist, not resist, be armed, not be armed, be armed, but not resist. What will his state of mind be? What will it, what will he look like? That was mm -hmm. the, and, I, and as I said in the paper that I wrote on this subject that prompted this interview, my view because the experimenter and the experimenter's expectations and anticipations and attitudes are a factor in how the experiment works. They're, 
you know, when you do a remote viewing, you're not at arm's length with your viewer. You are locked in a bio circuit of shared intentionality. And so the question is not just um, things that you know or suspect or believe, but underneath that are your attitudes and expectations and all of that. So my personal view was that Saddam Hussein would do the same thing Idi Amin did, which was take a truckload of money and, um, and uh, metaphorically, and uh, go to Saudi Arabia and pay off some prince and move into a safe house, mm -hmm. which is exactly what Idi Amin did. Mm -hmm. And he had just recently died. So uh, just a little earlier than we did this experiment. So I fully expected that that's where he would be because I had read that, first of all, Saddam Hussein was very particular about his personal hygiene. He only wore a suit and a shirt one time. He must have had hundreds of suits. And uh, he was very meticulous. He got manicures and and his hair was always exactly styled. And I mean, he was extremely fussy about his personal hygiene. So I thought, well, he's not going to be on the run. He's not going to be like some guy in an alleyway, you know, dirty and disheveled and with people running after him. He's going to take he had essentially unlimited money. He's going to take all that money and he's going to find somebody that'll that'll hide him. And then he'll mm -hmm. develop a resistance so that he can come back into power. And that was my expectation mm -hmm. and what I thought would happen. So I was stunned. I mean, I did. So we do the interview. We do the remote viewing sessions. And as I said, 47 people participated. Now, what I what I looked for, I knew from experience, both with the police work and also with what had happened at SRI in their Stargate program, that they rarely got the kind of meticulous feedback that that we got in the archaeological projects, where I was down to checking every single concept and I could get three experts to evaluate it for the accuracy of the concept. That just doesn't happen in these kind of intelligence police things. The First of all, the people that are looking for the person, once they find him, they're not interested in going back and spending several weeks meticulously uh, evaluating every concept. So I knew going in that a great deal of what they were going to tell me, I would never be able to check its authenticity, its accuracy. Mm -hmm. So what I was looking for were consensual image, consensual <laughs> and low a priori images which could be developed into hypotheses to direct field work, if you see this distinction here. Yeah. So I knew that, I mean, I knew, for instance, that there were all kinds of things they would say that that just would never come out, as I said. So when I asked them, the first question was the present circumstances and conditions when he's discovered of blah, blah, blah. And I, after they each turned in their data, and I went back that night and to develop these hypotheses, and I went through the, I broke the data down in consensual data and what we call low a priori. Uh, low a priori would be, um, if I ask you to describe a ship and you describe an anchor, well, I mean, ships have anchors. But 
this is again a real circumstance. If you describe an amethyst chandelier in the captain's cabin, I don't expect to see that because, um, I mean, that's not what you expect to see in a ship. Uh, and yet, to just to finish the story, that w- this particular thing was locating uh, the Dean Richmond. It, it did, in fact, have an amethyst chandelier in the captain's cabin. So those, that's a typical law a priori. And so I went through the data that night, and what emerged was not at all. Well, I mean, really, I was quite stunned. First of all, they didn't seem as having run away to another country, which is what I thought he would do. And second of all, the description that they gave was so unpredictable and atypical of Saddam Hussein behavior that I, you know, could this possibly be correct? Because the the story they told was that he would be hidden away in a in a little chamber that was dug out like a like a cave or a or a rat hole underneath a a, a small complex of buildings. They described the buildings very specifically. The building had, and they drew pictures for me. The building had a little kind of second story, but it was only over the front door of the building. This little kind of cupola on top of the building that it would have two large trees, one at each end of the building. I mean, just things you I, I never would have picked. Yeah. That it would be near the village of Tikrit, which is where Saddam Hussein was from. That uh, this little complex would have a river in its back behind it and a dirt road, gravel road in front of it, um, and that he would be crouched down in this little hole and that there was a breathing tube. It was so hidden away that they had built a breathing tube so that he could get air down there, and that he would look like a homeless person with salt and pepper uh, hair, uh, a, a, a scraggly beard. He would be dressed like a homeless person. I mean, I just... You know, if you think of all the pictures you see of Saddam Hussein, you may not like his taste, but he everything he wore was bespoke and uh, was always in meticulous condition. So the idea that he looked like a bum and that he was hiding in a little dirt dugout underneath a building, just I couldn't that he would have a box of money with him or a, 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 a container of money that he would have only one or two people would be with him. Uh, I thought, well, surely he's got lots of followers who would be supporting him. And so, you know, I just, none of it made any sense. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. The story that they told was not a story that had you ask any war correspondent at the time, um, what do you think, where do you think Saddam Hussein will be found? That would not have been the answer anybody gave Mm -hmm. you. And yet, of course, it all turns out to be true. And as I recall, they also indicated that he would have a gun with him, but that he wouldn't put up any resistance. Yes, that was a, that was a whole other thing. You know, Saddam Hussein always came across as very defiant and in your face, and you're not going to push me around. And so, and what they what the viewers described was a man who was depressed. Um, uh, despondent um, that he felt had a sense of hopelessness 
that he would have a gun, but he wouldn't put up any defense, that he would have this container of money, this box of money, that he'd only have a couple of people with him. I mean, it just, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, when I got through with the analysis and developed the hypotheses, I thought, I, I just, I can't believe, can this be true? Mm -hmm. And yet I knew from experience that, um, uh, that of the part that can be evaluated between 75 and 85 percent of the remote viewing when you do it the way I do it. I, I mean, I can't speak about others. When you do it about uh, the way I do it and you follow the protocol, that between 75 and 85 percent of the material will turn out to be correct or partially correct and operational. That is, if I, if I said um, uh, the man with the earphones in his ears and I said you had a white sweater on rather than a tan sweater, that would be considered partially correct, but still operational. Mm -hmm. That is, you're wearing a sweater, and it's a, it's a discernment as to whether that sweater is white or just simply tan, right? Yep. So the descriptions that they gave me, it was all very specific. I mean, there was no question. You, you would be able to get in a car and drive out and find him, I mean, near a village near to Crete, okay, that had in a complex of buildings that had this weird second story that had these big trees on either side of the house. As far as I can see from, from doing Google Earth, there was no other structure around that looked remotely like that, that he would be in this, this little hideaway dugout place with this air vent. I mean, all of those things were correct. So, the function of the experiment would be was to develop a set of hypotheses that a field team could, in fact, uh, take into the field and use to locate. Again, remote viewing is not a searching process. It's a finding process. I mean, it took me about five minutes to maybe 10 minutes to find Cleopatra's palace. Because you're not searching, you're just going to the place. Mm -hmm. So in this instance, you didn't really have a search team that you were forwarding this information to, but you made an effort to ensure that the uh, chronology of when the viewing was done and what the results of the viewing were would be unimpeachable. Yes, well, first of all, I, I, that's the standard Mobius protocol. So yes, I did... I collected all the data from the viewers, just so everybody's clear on this. I did my analysis and developed the hypotheses. There were seven hypotheses, I think, that would guide the field work. I turned the whole thing over to the archivist at the ARE, at the uh, at Casey Foundation, and uh, she put it in an envelope and uh, note and sealed the envelope and put her notary stamp over the envelope. And that's where it is to this day. So that there was an unimpeachable chronology. And that's very important that the predictions and the analysis and the development of the hypothesis, all of that is done before the field work is done. And it is all turned over to an independent third party who seals it notarizes it and uh, takes control of it and all of that happened and then uh, the next uh, uh, the next day I um, briefed 
the viewers because I didn't know when they were going to ever get any feedback. So I, all I could do was brief them and say, here is the consensual hypothesis that you all developed. And so I went through all of that in detail. Now, as I said, the interesting thing was that there were a number of military intelligence people who had identified themselves and a number of others who I suspected but didn't identify themselves who were in that world. And so I gave them all this information. Now, the big question, of course, is did this play any role in the finding of Saddam Hussein? And the answer is, I have no idea. Hmm. All I can tell you is this. About three, I guess it was about three weeks later, I went out to get my mail. And um, in my mailbox was an envelope. And in the envelope, which had no address on it, had no return address on it, hadn't been sent through the mail. It had been put in the, in the post box out in front of my property were these two pictures and one they're they're time dated and one and they clearly were taken by whoever one of the crew who actually found him one of the team and they are a picture of Saddam Hussein looking like a homeless person dressed in grubby clothes with the salt and pepper wild beard and the disheveled hair and the other was a picture of a metal box a container a green metal container that had $750,000 in it. And that No note, nothing. Just those two pictures, which I have never seen anywhere else. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they're probably all over the net now because I've <laughs> published this paper, but I had never seen them. I went searching for them. So clearly they were taken by one of the team that found him, and they were put in my mailbox, by somebody who had access to mm -hmm. it. I, I, you know, what can I tell you? So was that a way of saying thank you? I have no idea. Well, at least I suppose it, it's an acknowledgement that uh, somebody who was there on the scene uh, at the time that Saddam was captured knew somebody who knew about your remote viewing. Yes, I presume that, because otherwise, mm -hmm. how would it end up in my mailbox? Yeah. So it's one of those mysteries. I don't know. All I can say is that um, in November, um, 47 people described in great detail, with a, I mean, with great detail, exactly where he would be, his present circum his circumstances and conditions, his appearance, his mindset, who would be with him, what he would have with him, in, in very meticulous detail, and that all of those things turned out to be correct. It's very interesting. The question that it raises, of course, is, are these kinds of things still going on? Well, I mean, officially, the government is no longer in the remote viewing business, but examples like uh, this certainly suggest that they'd be smart to uh, keep an interest uh, up in this field. Well, my personal view is that... Um, since all the information about how to do remote viewing is easily available, not just from me, but from other people, that you don't really need a research lab like SRI anymore. What you need is a cadre of guys that do it and don't talk about it. So could remote viewing be going on? Could there be a crew of people doing remote viewing? 
uh, on a regular basis for military intelligence community and just nobody talks about it. Uh, that, I think, is probably the most likely reality. Maybe they don't do it, but if you're not doing it, it would almost be um, an act of dereliction because it's clear both from the work that I have done and the work that the SRI people did that this is highly useful and very much uh, a, a tool for practical application work. So why wouldn't you do it? Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly know uh, that uh, within the uh, confines simply of one organization, the International Remote Viewing Association, there are dozens of small groups of people scattered uh, throughout the United States and elsewhere who you could call them hobbyists, I suppose, but many of them are engaged in, in various uh, activities, working with police, working with uh, yeah other business organizations and so on that might uh, wish to employ their services. Absolutely. I mean, again, I, it would almost be a dereliction of, of uh, your, your, your job not to utilize all the sensing technologies you could in order to get that kind of information. And since you know that remote viewing routinely produces, I mean, and it is routine, the interesting thing about when we founded Irva, those of us that put it together, the the idea was to to get it out of the laboratory and make it an avocational interest, so that people would not only learn about remote viewing, but also would begin to think about what is the nature of consciousness and who am I and what are my abilities as a human being, and so. The thing about remote viewing is that it is so successful that it has become an avocational interest because people do it routinely and are successful enough doing it that way that they continue to be encouraged to do it. So it's, you know, it's kind of like scuba diving or hot air ballooning or something. It's not a huge field, but it has conferences and magazines and and discussion groups, and like any other yeah. small avocational interest group. And so, yes, I would assume, I mean, I know for a fact that in France, for instance, there is uh, the, the one person who has really taken up the Mobius Consensus Protocol and, um, and utilized it and really put it to work in France is a former intelligence officer, and he's doing it for the courts and for corporations and has been for some years. I trained him in how to do it, and he picked it up and has been at it ever since. And I assume there are lots of other groups doing similar things. Well, Stephen Schwartz, once again, it's been a delight to talk to you. Now that uh, I'm working on the Internet, uh, I hope that we can have uh, more conversations about some of uh, your other successful remote viewings and uh, any other interest of yours. Uh, I know our viewers uh, will be very happy uh, to see you uh, on the New Thinking Aloud channel once again. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jeff. And you tell them, um, I mean, I, you can put up a, 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 an image. Um, this, I published the paper in Edge Science. Mm -hmm. and so it's freely available. You can go to academia.edu or ResearchGate, or you can get a copy of Edge Science or go to their website. So this entire story in detail is available 
and I hope will encourage other people to do similar things. I, I believe Edge Science is a magazine published by the Society for Scientific Exploration. It is indeed. Okay, Stephen, thank you very much. Stefan. <laughs> you take care. Okay, you too. Uh-huh. 